Welcome to the latest installment of The Curious Capitalist. The Curious Capitalist is a series of podcasts where we take the opportunity to not only speak to board members from the Conscious Capitalism Connecticut chapter, but also local business owners, startups and entrepreneurs from across the state of Connecticut. On this edition of The Curious Capitalist, I'm joined by Adam Lazar, who is the CEO of Asarasi, which is easy for me to say. Adam, welcome. Thank you so much for having me, Claire. What's the company called? Asarasi. You have to it's sound Italian. That's right. You have to sound Italian. You say, Asarasi, it's the Latin for the maple tree. And if you say it with an Italian accent, you'll never go wrong. Fantastic. I was practicing before uh, before this interview, so uh, hopefully I've vaguely got it right. So we do have the privilege of speaking to you today. You are, of course, the CEO of the company. Tell me a little bit, because I love the story of how Asarasi came into existence. It's such a good story. No, it's, it's a lot of fun, actually. I founded the company in 2014 uh, when I was experiencing an epic drought in California, where I lived in Los Angeles. Our reservoirs were down to about 10, 15% levels. And when water quality in those reservoirs gets down to those levels, they tend to get a lot of nasty elements kind of mixed up in the things. And I realized that there had to be a better way. And and I had recently or previously seen, should I say, I witnessed a maple farmer throwing out about 10 to 15,000 gallons an hour a few years previous to that. Wow. It was the spring of 2008 and I, I walked into a maple farm open house and I saw a maple farmer extracting the maple sugar molecule from literally hundreds of thousands of gallons of maple sap that he had collected that week. And he was taking the sugar molecule out by reverse osmosis and literally throwing away 97% of his hard work in the form of water that came out of the inside of a maple tree. Wow. And I looked at the farmer as he's explaining me to him this process. And I, I said to him, what are you doing? And he said, oh, this is water that comes from the tree. We take the sugar out, we make our stairs, and we throw the rest away. And I said, how much is that? He says, well, you know, this machine here processes about 15,000 gallons an hour. And, you know, we will run 50 to 100,000 gallons a day. And I just couldn't believe what I was seeing. And I asked him, I said, what would you do with it? He says, well, I don't know what to do with it. Who would want it? It's just water. And the light bulb went off. And then I realized something fairly quickly when I raced home to write that business plan that weekend is that I had no idea what the hell to do with it either. (laughs) (laughs) Free water. What do I do with it? (laughs) That's right. And and this was 2008. So then fast forward, I was living in Los Angeles going through this epic drought. And I said, you know, there's got to be a better way. We're not going to build a pipeline to LA from all the maple farms in the Northeast. But what if we could do something with it that was more concrete, more valuable, more disruptive to the space? And then I thought, Well, to hell with it. If people are willing to pay for water from glaciers and water from volcanic rocks and islands in the South Pacific and water from Mars for that matter, and they're willing to pay a premium for it, why can't we sell them a more sustainable form of water that doesn't destroy the groundwater table and provides an economic empowered activity to these farms that desperately need more money? Everyone's a winner. Everyone wins. I just love it. I just love the fact that that's how it came about. And it is such a wasteful process and and making good out of that. I just, I think it's a fantastic idea. So tell me a little bit about how you got to this point in your career, because you didn't just stumble across these maple syrup farmers, did you? You know, I I actually, (laughs) that's why I say it's a fun story, because I actually did. I'm not a genius, right? I just happened to be at the right place at the right time with the right (laughs) 
thinking. And, 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 and no, really, I didn't wake up one day and be like, let's just go get water out of trees. That's a, that's a crazy idea. If you had that dream at night and you told your spouse the next day, they would be like, you just stick with your day job, honey. It just wouldn't ever come to fruition that way. So I, I saw this. I physically and literally witnessed this, and it bothered me for about six years. And I couldn't get it out of my head. And when I physically saw this destructive drought, I wasn't very water conscious. I wasn't the most conscious consumer out there, to be candid with you. I did my job to recycle at my home trash bin. And, you know, and that was what I thought my part was to play. And I really wasn't a very good steward in general. And I think we all strive to be better every day. And we're all guilty of some form, fashion or another, but because we all are by and large consumers. But in reality, this opened my eyes. And when I realized how awfully we were treating the environment to the point that farmers couldn't grow food in the food basket of the country, you know, that our entire country was at risk, that my children's future was at risk, that my property value selfishly was at risk. All of these things that I cared about in my world were at risk. And that suddenly was a transcendental moment for me when I realized that, hey, if we don't do something, even if it's one simple activity on each of our part, we can make a whole lot of difference. And I thought to myself, well, what can one person really do? And it turns out one person can really have a whole lot of impact if you just put your mind and devotion and dedication to it. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. I had a, a geography teacher back in England who drummed into us that just one act that we did ourselves could change the world. And she believed that we were the generation who were going to change the world. So when they first brought in the charge for plastic carrier bags, I always say to people, always, when they offer me a bag, I say, no, thank you, I'm saving the world today. And they usually laugh at me, like, oh, yeah, crazy British woman saving the world by not having a five-cent bag at Dollar General. But the, the irony is, and how I was taught was that if everybody that went through that classroom that was exposed to that teacher does the same as me, how many millions of plastic bags have not been bought by people like me saving the world? So, yeah, just one small act each can make a real difference. I agree, totally. So... Tell me, what do you wish you had known before you started out on this career path? Oh my gosh. Uh, how much time do we have? Uh, I can give you 40 minutes. I'm going to chop it to 20. <laughs> <laughs> well, there, there's a lot of things I wish I'd known because that's a big rearview mirror, right? You know, and you can use the, that rearview mirror experience to propel yourself forward and take those learnings further. And there's a lot of them, believe me, because entrepreneurship, no matter what business you have, whether it's, you know, making water from trees or, you know, a marketing agency or, you know, a dog walking business, you're going to make mistakes. You're going to have failures. You're going to fall down and you're going to have those moments that you literally die inside. And I don't know if that's even the appropriate description. Like when you spend $25,000 on the first time you're making something and you've never tasted it or experienced it before and you have to just trust your gut that it's going to work. That's a gamble. And yep. You take a risk, right? And you, yep. take, and you, take, and you take that gamble. And uh, I think, you know, the biggest learning that I could take away from this is firstly, don't stop learning. Don't think you've ever... Yeah. You know, it's like the moment you think you've mastered the game of golf, <laughs> the moment you figured out you haven't mastered it at all. So don't believe you're infallible with that respect. But I think some of the things I wish I would have known are how hard the beverage business is. I don't think I ever would have gotten into the beverage industry if I'd known upfront how challenging and how chaotic and how messy and how awfully competitive and all of the things that, that make it just as amazing as it makes it 
just as awful. Yeah, no, it's an interesting so, insight. It must be so fiercely competitive. It is, and, and you're constantly juggling, you know, this this passion for conscious consumption and at the same time trying to fit that consumption habit and appetite into a cost structure that isn't always necessarily inclined to a the the cost of doing things as a small business versus a large business and b really you know understanding what it takes to engage with consumers in the first place and i think so there's a lot of trickiness to all of it and you just adapt improvise and overcome and you just figure it out as you go and sometimes it's just you know the, the whole idea that you fake it till you make it it's not really fake it it's just you you just do it and you be brave about it and and you might be wrong and that's okay as long as you're moving forward moving forward and trying at least oh yeah okay weird question time are you ready for adam i am if you could have dinner with any figure in history who would it be and why and what question would you ask them oh my that is a very weird question. I, I haven't uh, ever, ever in a You didn't lifetime. think this was going to be easy, did you? <laughs> no, no, I, I certainly didn't. So, I mean, like, I, I literally want to have a dinner party with so many people because I'm very social and I like to, you know, break bread with people. And this quarantine thing is really messing me up on that front. Real some, yeah. some of the biggest uh, or most influential people in your life. Any figure in history that you'd like to, to sit down and enjoy a meal with? You know, there, there's a couple of folks that immediately come to mind that aren't necessarily from our generation. I mean, uh, I'm a former military officer and I, I and you know, I, I always wondered what it would be like to be George Washington and the challenges of leadership that that individual is faced with. Uh-huh. And at the same time, I would love to sit down and pit Gandhi's brain on enlightenment. <laughs> so, Absolutely, you know, yes. Two completely opposite uh, spectrum, but um, I think I would sit down with George Washington for a couple reasons. One is, as an entrepreneur, you face insurmountable odds. You know, you're charging down the hill at the face of the enemy, which is the valley of death in small business, right, in entrepreneurship and where your cash flow is gonna run out and your customers are slow to pay and your consumers are complaining about some fault product and it seems like the sky is falling and there's just no light at the end of the tunnel and you're just gonna run into or fall on your own sword, so to speak. Uh, I'd like to know what it's like to be faced with those odds in more of a realistic term of, you know, there is no greater odds against you than being tried as a treasonous individual. <laughs> and what kind of chutzpah, if you, if you will, would it take to be that brave of an individual? Because I don't think I'm that brave. And and understanding how you defy those types of odds in the face of that type of adversity, which would really give me insight how to be braver in my own kind of daily life. So I, I, maybe that is, is something that I would personally subscribe to. It's funny. Uh, he's come up a few times, actually, when we've been doing this series of podcasts for... Uh, oh, really? Yeah, for Conscious Capitalism. He's come up a few times, but the one that's probably the most memorable for me just at the moment is uh, one of the uh, one of the last podcasts we, we did. Somebody said they wanted Secretariat, I believe it's called. It's a thoroughbred racehorse who won the Kentucky Derby. <laughs> Sorry, the Kentucky Derby and uh, they, they wanted dinner with the thoroughbred racehorse so I was like hmm oh, that'd be hay for you then sir <laughs> yeah that's right that's right <laughs> but I'll George Washington, Washington is one that comes up quite regularly so uh, I think it would be a popular one for that dinner party yeah yeah I know for sure I, I thought he would have a hard time eating with his wooden teeth <laughs> okay so thinking about your life as a whole what would you say is the greatest personal fear that you've ever had to face in your life the, the greatest personal fear you know honestly is the personal the greatest personal fear i ever had which 
I always challenged myself. I always wanted to be desperately be an entrepreneur, but I was so afraid to be an entrepreneur because of the fear of failure. And I always thought, oh my God, if I fail, then what? Right? How will people perceive me? How will my friends and family and colleagues and, you know, how will that affect my income and my earning? And, and how will that affect my ability to provide for my family? And will I be able to recover from that? And, you know, should I just go to Vegas and put it all in red or black? I don't know, right? Like those were the things <laughs> Absolutely. That, I mean, you're probably at better odds, to be honest. But, um, <laughs> you know, I think it's like one in 10 makes it versus, you know, man, it's a coin toss on red or black. But yeah, I think my greatest personal fear was failure, which drives me to be a better entrepreneur and a better advocate for sustainability because one of the things I realized early on was it was better to focus on the things that mattered most, which was not profitability, which was not margins, which was not, you know, how many dollars did I bring into the business today? It was how much impact was I delivering? And if I focused on that side of the coin, all those other things were going to happen. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's going to be almost a byproduct of it. Exactly. Yeah. And that's, and that's how we've continued to carry on for so long. Like it. How did you first get involved with conscious capitalism in Connecticut? Uh, if my memory serves me correctly through the Reset Accelerator, the Social Enterprise Trust out yeah. of Hartford. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, and, we interviewed uh, those guys, yeah. Yes, that was the first accelerator program that I ever applied to. And, you know, and I loved and still do love everything that they're about and how much of a difference that, you know, Kate Emery's making in her community and our community in general and really delivering on her passion, uh, you know, as the leader in that accelerator program. And she's putting her own money up, you know, personally and professionally to support this accelerator and how much and how strongly she believes in the support of businesses like Azarazi and what a great advocate she's been for it. And that, I believe that's where the introduction came from. Fantastic. Okay. So thinking about culture and leadership and without kind of defaulting to generic core values, what language would you use to describe your organization's culture now? Yeah, we're a really small company. Um, and and our, our culture is really about, you know, the, the thing that I look for in people when I ask them to join our organization, the number one thing I look for is commitment. And, you know, engagement in certain areas that, you know, unique aspects of commitment that people have had. Uh, one gal that I hired last year, uh, she's uh, just amazing and she's willing to do anything and everything, no matter what it is. Could be, you know, sweeping the floor if I asked her, which I certainly wouldn't. But at the end of the day, she's willing to go out there and do anything it takes to push the ball down the field, make it better opportunity for us. And one of the things I asked her in, in our interview was, what's the most interesting thing you've ever done in your life? And she said, well, I was a cowgirl. <laughs> I said, that, that takes a lot of commitment. That's I said, fantastic. you got to tell me more. And she says, I, I spent a couple years in Australia roping cattle. Wow. She says, I went to vet tech school and I knew how to birth calves and I knew how to castrate bulls and I just really loved being outside and I, I loved horses. I was so dumbfounded by the response. I, I couldn't not hire. He just said, when could you start? <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's right. I think um, when I think about culture, I think about commitment to the cause because a, a culture is about an organization's ability to stay focused and stay committed to its mission. And if you just have this abstract mission statement of we're going to be the greatest company because we want to make more money than the next guy, eh, you know, how much commitment can somebody have to that? And how much turnover are you going to have as a result of that? And how much success are you going to achieve with those kind of blanket mindsets? And so 
you know, commitment, you, know, you can always teach someone to understand about sustainability and always learn more about consciousness around consumption, consciousness around the ecosystem. What you can't teach them is commitment. It has to be ingrained in them. So I, I think that's if one word that would be how, how I summarize our culture. Yeah, it's a big one. So thinking about that culture, would you say that within your organization that you have a stated higher purpose? And if so, what is it and how did you arrive at it? And is it widely embraced from yourself down to your former cowgirl, for example? <laughs> That's right. Yeah. 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 The higher purpose is ingrained in everyday activity. So, you know, we know that if we are successful selling our products, there's a direct correlation to, between our success and the success of the farmers that we represent. Uh, there's a direct correlation between our success and the consumption habits that we've changed in the hearts and minds of people that have become fans of our brand for the impact that we offer. And so by just the sheer consumption of our products, we can improve not only people's lives, but also give them and deliver on a promise to make an impact by doing nothing more than just being a, a better consumer. And so I, I think that's really how I, I, I see as our higher mission is, is to make an impact in anywhere possible, whether that's upstream from our farms and their supply chain of these delicious maple waters that we sell as Azarazi, or, um, or downstream to partnering with the National Institute for the Blind with sheltered workshops to give the sight impaired jobs that do all of our pick, pack, and ship for our e-commerce activity, or you know ensuring that our packaging is from the Sustainable Forestry Initiative and certified you know, green in, in that way. And so delivering on the promise of making an impact, as I mentioned earlier, is more important than profit. And ultimately, if we do those things, that success will come from it and all this other great impact will occur. So it's a virtuous cycle of, uh, of economic activity that delivers on these sustainable initiatives. And first and foremost comes that sustainability and everything else follows. So I'm changing the world. I'm saving the world with my plastic bag consumption. And uh, you guys are saving the world bottle at a time. I'm saving it bag at a time. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, that's right. So maybe I should explain to your audience uh, how this really makes a difference and so when, when you tap a maple tree and pull that maple sap out of the tree and then extract the sugar which the farm is doing all that laborious work then they have this tremendous byproduct which we take from the farm to our bottling partners and bottle it up as plant-based or plant-sourced waters. Clearly, we're adding to the drinkable water supply without taking away from the groundwater table. And at the same point, we're adding that economic activity back to the farm and helping them prosper. We represent over 110 family farms today with a consortium or syndicate of farmers that have signed up to be a part of this. And, uh, and then we deliver to that to all sorts of retail environments, whether that's the, you know, the grocery store like the Fresh Market across 22 states in 160 stores or in Japan in Pronto cafes or, uh, you know, in hundreds of specialty independent retailers that love carrying our products. And the consumer finds our products in those locations. Not only do they get a unique experience from something they've never seen before, but truly love from, uh, you know, the two comments we get on our products is, oh, they're delicious and crisp and refreshing. But they also get this powerful moment when they discover those impacts that I just described to you. And they realize, and you can see the light bulb go off when you don't explain the impact and you just to let them figure it out. That discovery moment, that customer suddenly has ownership in that moment. Because if I just tell you something like I just told you today, it has less power and less authenticity if you figured that out on your own accord. And so what I love about our product just simply being on the shelf and the active consumption of someone buying that for a fair price and then realizing what it is that they just did, it's empowering. So- um, Yeah, it's priceless. Absolutely. 
Okie dokie. If you could snap your fingers and make one cultural change happen in your company, what would it be and why? Hmm. Uh... I need to think about that. It's you know, as a small organization, we kind of snap our fingers regularly, ten times a day, and make changes we wish to make immediately. <laughs> that yeah. flexibility of being a small business is is amazing. It is. This is what I tell our people every day that I get a chance to, and they're just so sick and tired of hearing it from me. They actually finish the sentence when I say it. I always tell people, listen, if you don't like the way things are going, just wait a minute. Literally, it's going to change. And if you do like the way things are going. Don't get used to it because wait a minute, it's going to change. And if there's one thing that's for certain as a small business is it's constantly changing and be flexible and adapt to that new new world on a regular basis and we're all going to be successful. And so, like I said, we do snap our fingers quite often. We stay focused to our mission, but you know, you have to, again, adapt and improvise to overcome the challenges you face regularly. Absolutely. So when you're not at work, what do you do to relax? I have three girls. I have a 12-year-old, a six-year-old, and a one-and-a-half-year-old. So um, yeah, financially, strategically, it spread apart mostly the college <laughs> so wow I'll, I'll i'll pay for college for something like 18 years straight or whatever it is <laughs> but actually covid19 has taught me a little bit more about relaxation because it's it's kind of a forced uh, relaxation if you will and uh, i found myself doing things that um, i haven't done in a while like uh, kayaking or taking long walks in the countryside yeah you know just being out out in nature and and reflecting on the day, the week, last year. So having the time to do that is such a benefit that you yeah. don't realize that you've forgotten to do those things until you have time to do them again. So I would say reflection and, and just physical activity to you know rejuvenate and energize. Absolutely. It's really interesting. I was doing a recording with somebody from Inspire Core uh, earlier this week. And one of the things she said is that in order to ensure that she's productive, that she actually diarizes time for her to do arts and crafts or go for a walk in nature. And the way she described it was allowing her brain to take a sabbatical. And I love that, you know, <laughs> and that's her way of, of staying motivated and inspired and not getting caught in the, the daily, you know, trudge, if you like. So uh, it was quite an interesting look, but I think you're right. This uh, pandemic has changed a lot of people's appreciation for the great outdoors. Absolutely. I mean, don't get me wrong. I was up till 3.30 working on website uh, this morning and then got back up at 6.30 to, to take care of a little one so mom could go teach online school. Wow. Uh, so, you know, I mean, there's always going to be challenges. Those are not always the regular case or I'd be a total disaster, but they do happen pretty regularly. You know, there are occasional things you just, uh, you deal with it. But um, as long as you find that balance for sure, you know, that's, that's the most important thing. It's easy to lose sight of it. The work-life balance is, is always one of the toughest balancing acts, I think. But I think uh, having uh, three girls in your life is going to keep you uh, very balanced, I'm sure. Or, or imbalanced. I'm, I... <laughs> <laughs> I'm saying nothing as a girl. Um, so what about television? Are you into TV? Are you, do you get stuck into a good Netflix series? Or uh, do, do you have much time for television? You know, this is my Achilles heel sometimes, is I don't have any time for television. But if I get hooked, uh, I'm, I have ADHD like you wouldn't believe. And sometimes I, I refer to it as a secret superpower. Yep. Uh, I guess not so secret anymore. Because... <laughs> Uh, it, it, it sometimes gives you tunnel vision in that you can dive down that rabbit hole and you go so deep that the rest of the world ceases to exist outside of that focus. So you can have hyper focus 
which can be a total detriment. To the house could be burning down and you wouldn't know it. When I go to television, the same thing happens. So I try to avoid television uh, because I'll, uh, I think I burned through all seasons of Ozark in like the matter of 24 hours. <laughs> uh, Got sucked into it. Yeah, the house could have burned down. I'd still be there munching on popcorn like, oh my God, what happens next? And the only thing that stops me is the end of the season. I go, oh God, what day is it? And it's like this, you know, I look like a bum who's been living outside for three days and unshaved and, and you know, clothes are torn and dirty. And it's like, oh God, what happened to me? No, it's really not that <laughs> <laughs> the only man to ever appear street homeless after uh, watching Ozark. Love binge, it. Binge watching Ozark. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> so to finish up then, tell me a little bit about your plans. We're talking the next five, 10 years. What's the future hold for Adam Lazar? Yeah. You know, we've just engaged with just a wonderful and amazing relationship uh, with Anheuser-Busch. Kind of a little bit living the dream, which is, is kind of a, a silly thing to say. I mean, as an entrepreneur, I always wanted to be an entrepreneur. And I used to think in those terms, what's next for me in three to five years? Where do I want to see myself? And we've been brought up this way to think that. Today, I don't think about those long-term objectives more than I think about how am I going to make a difference today or how am I going to do something today that's going to make my tomorrow even better? And if you ladder those moments, not only do you enjoy the moment more, but you also don't disappoint yourself when you make such a high lofty goal, you shoot for the moon and you land in the lake, right? Uh, and so <laughs> I, I, I like I like to think of where do I see myself? You know, I, I would love to be, you know, running that multi-billion dollar impact organization and delivering on not just the promise to uh, activate and, and advocate for all the farms that we represent under the Azarazi brand today, but you're changing the way we consume consume water as a natural resource, leveraging this wonderfully fantastic resource to enhance the food and beverage industry in a positive and contributive way. And when I think about what does that look like future state, I have the ability to undertake more philanthropic efforts, right? And more philanthropic activities where my heart, heart is uh, around social causes as well. So I think maybe that's future state for me, but I'm not going to, you know, use the cliche of living the dream because that's, that's, that's what people that aren't living the dream say. <laughs> it's um, absolutely true. You're not going to project, though. Just live in the moment. Yeah. And so, you know, with, with like Anheuser-Busch, uh, we were accepted into their 100-plus accelerator, uh, which we started a few months ago, uh, which gave us access to some of the most amazing mentors and resources in the sustainability ecosystem from the beverage industry environmental roundtable as a consortium of all beverage giants in the world trying to make the world a better place. Uh, you know, to potential strategic partners with, you know, a large number of NGOs that are interested in what we're doing and giving us exposure to the broader market, uh, you know, to look at Azarazi as a way of, you know, a David and Goliath story about how can we partner with the world to deliver on this promise? And so today, you know, we're, we're continuing to lay the foundation for that future and, and ultimately, my hope is that we can displace not just the bottled water industry, but many areas that use this rapidly depleting natural resource of water, which we all depend on every single day, uh, with a more natural plant source solution that doesn't destroy our ecosystem uh, while helping all these folks in, in the farming community survive. Adam, it is a very noble cause, and I wish you all the luck in the world with it. It's been an absolute privilege to speak to you today. Thank you so much for your time. Do you want to hit me up with the website, please? Yes, you can go to azarazi.com, spelled A-S-A-R-A-S-I. Again, say it like you're from Italy, Azarazi. 
you'll never Azarazi. Never get it wrong. Thank you so much for having me, Claire. And I really enjoyed our conversation. Um, it's an absolute privilege. And if you're in any doubt about how to say that company name, it is phonetically spelled on the website. Thank you for the small mercies. It's been an absolute <laughs> privilege. And I do wish you all the luck in the world. And I very much look forward to sampling some of your Azarazi. Absolutely. Just let me know where to send you some. I'm happy to share. <laughs> I shall happily buy it and support those farmers. Thank you so much for your time. Uh, thank you for listening. If you want more information about the conscious capitalism movement, here in Connecticut. The website is connecticut.consciouscapitalism.org. Until next time, Adam, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much, Claire. Be well. Thank you for taking the time to listen to the latest instalment of The Curious Capitalist. For more information, you can visit the website, connecticut.consciouscapitalism.org.